You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and owe, and we'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. I don't know how we got here so far so fast. It's already the second week of 2019. And if you're like many people, you've still got your New Year's resolutions fresh in your mind, which makes it a very good time to talk about abundance or rather the art of abundance. We're going to do this with Lisa Peterson, who is in studio with me today. Lisa is an abundance coach. She's also a business strategist, a podcaster, an author, and she's helped thousands of people develop truly practical skills for attracting greater wealth and freedom and peace of mind. She's the founder of wealthclinic.com, where she hosts a podcast called The Art of Abundance. Hey, Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Jean. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you. You know, what I like about your background so much is that you are not just a coach, you're a certified financial planner. So you mix the truly practical with a lot of these coach-like teachings as well. Tell me, how did you get to this? I had no idea that I was going to end up coaching. In fact, even when I started my business, I thought that was the furthest thing from the situation. I really have always cared a lot about the emotions of money, people's relationship with money. But working in finance for 25 years, as you can imagine, I was sort of an oddball out. Like I didn't know what was going on inside of me. I just knew that I was paying a lot of attention to people's feelings around money and how they'd respond and how they'd react. And I worked in insurance. I worked in mortgage. I worked as a financial advisor. And every single time I would work with people, I would notice these nuances. And when I started my business, I realized that If I couldn't find ways to help people enjoy their relationship with money more, I wouldn't feel complete. Like, it just became something I I totally became consumed by. Is that for some personal reason? I mean, were you emotional about money, and is that what made you notice it in other people? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, I've looked at this a lot, but no question about it. I had, from a very early time in life, decided that if I have a lot of money, my life will be better. It'll be more enjoyable. And that came from the fact that fights in my home growing up were often centered around money. My mom had some really um, deep wounds about being abandoned and not having money when she needed it. And she would tell me stories of stealing food in a grocery store because she didn't think that they had enough to eat. And so I think without even realizing how much she had had these experiences and then passed them on to me, even though I never went without, I still was carrying a lot of that. You're describing what you call a scarcity mindset, that even when you have enough, you think you won't have enough. I mean, it sounds to me a little like bag lady fear. 
Totally. I was fascinated when that study came out by Allianz Life, you know, back in after the recession that said that like one in two women in North America were fearful of becoming a bag lady. And then I there was that movie Blue Jasmine with Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. And she was like, that was kind of what she ended up becoming at the end. And it was like a horror film for me because I could totally relate to exactly what you're saying. It's this fear that that it was unexplainable, was mostly my mom, not really mine, but I was holding it. When we look at the women in that Alliance study and at you as well, because you said you never had to go without, it's not necessarily women who don't have money. A good number of those women in the research earned mid-six figures, which was the shocking thing to me. So where does it come from if it doesn't come from lack? My impression from all of the people I've worked with is that it often has a lot to do with our family structures, with the things that our parents and even our grandparents passed on to our parents, passed on to us. So these belief systems that we subscribe to, but they're they're not something that we personally created through our own experience. How do we get beyond it? Yeah, it's a great question. I've found that it's so important to really know thyself. Like if you don't know who you are and why you're making the decisions you're making, you're going to keep repeating them. What sort of decisions does a, a scarcity mindset result in? Like if you see yourself doing X, you know you have this. Can you describe it? Sure. There's many situations. In my case, I said money's going to solve all my problems. I'm going to work myself to death. Like it's never going to be enough. I keep having the money come in, but the minute it comes, I realize that it hasn't filled the hole. So that's one example. Another, which is so weird, it's like almost, you could almost call it like over-earning because you, you're never satisfied. But the same exact thing could also, also translate into under-earning. So it's fascinating that the same problem can just manifest in different ways based on our personality type. If you don't know what is at the bottom of your money emotions, are there some easy ways to sort of figure out, okay, what is it that I'm not remembering from my childhood that is driving the way that I am behaving with money today? Hmm. So I love, the reason I love money so much as a self-development tool is that you can dive into the actual situations and start to notice the patterns that are playing out over and over again. So that's your clue. Does that make sense? Yeah. And from the clues, you can start to understand what's going on. What am I feeling? I mean, this is this has really been the biggest revelation of all the work and in the coaching is that so often when we have those beliefs, they cut us off from our feelings and not the emotional, like the anger and the frustration and all of that, but oftentimes more of that wounded, sad feeling like you're not enough, those feelings are the ones that once you get into those, they by feeling them and, and allowing them to be, they actually start to tell you a lot because inside of the feeling is that past experience or those stories that played out with your family that allow you to say, oh, 
oh, I see how this kept happening over and over for my mom, and I see how I adopted that myself, and and there we go. But another way is 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 what I love is journaling and questions. You know, like evoking questions around our experiences with money brings this stuff to the surface. You have to let yourself marinate in it. <laughs> Which, you, I mean, you brought up Blue Jasmine, but Kissing Jessica Stein is one of my favorite movies. I'll watch that one every time it's on cable. And and they talk about, you, you know, I have to let it marinate a little bit. Yes. Exactly. All right. You've got a three-part process for moving people out of these scarcity mindsets. Let's let's run people through it. You, you said first you have to acknowledge the delivery and accept the package. I'll, I'll accept any package. So tell me what, you, <laughs> tell me what you're talking about. Okay, perfect. Perfect. So what I call this is a mindful money moment. And if we just give it a setting, I think it'll really resonate with people. So imagine that a woman uh, has a long day at work. She decides that she's not, she's interested in going shopping. She kind of picks up a few things on the way home from work. She comes home and right as she's opening the door, she's thinking, I really don't want my husband to see these bags. You know, like I'd love to hide them. <laughs> and she walks in, looks up, there he is. And, and the first thing he says is, oh, you went shopping again. And it's in that moment that we all have these situations, kind of triggering moments where like, what am I going to do? And so a money mindful moment fits here where the first, the, the package is he spoke to her, she feels the frustration, but instead of doing anything, she just stops, like stops in midstream and takes a nice big breath mm-hmm. and realizes that there's a triggering situation going on. The package has been received. Now are you going to punt it back and kind of strike out or are you going to sit with it for a second? And you might even say to you know your partner, I don't really want to talk about this right now because I'm going to take a moment to myself. So that's first step. So you don't want to say this old thing like I bought it weeks ago. You don't want to lie to get yourself out of the situation. Right. You don't want to lie or strike out. Okay. All right. I'm going to sit with it for a second. I'm going to take a moment. People who have had a decent amount of therapy sometimes are good at knowing to say, I need to take a moment. Yes. Yes. And I've never been to a therapist. So this Maybe that would have been the faster way, but it just took me years to know that it wasn't. When these scarcity patterns are inside of us, they're so fast to want to deflect the attention to something else by kind of pushing it back. Okay. All right. So we are accepting the package. Then we receive the teaching. Yeah. What does that mean? It's kind of like stop look. So right now, receiving the package is like, look at what's going on. What do you have in front of you? And this is actually where you want to feel. Feel what's happening. Well, what we have is something that sounds like a criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So the first would be like, I'm frustrated that this criticism has just come at me for this situation. But what I've seen is if we can sit with the feeling like, oh, this is really frustrating. Like, I'm pissed. You know, right now I'm pissed that he said that. Again, not responding and just sitting with it. When you sit with it, you're like, you know, I'm actually really not that pissed at him. Kind of pissed that I went shopping. Maybe that is the thing because you knew that that really wasn't the thing you needed to do, but you did it. And when you sit with it a little bit longer, all of a sudden, you know, in this situation, you realize, you know, the reason I went shopping was because there's some stuff happening at work. And I'm really not feeling good about it. 
but I don't want to look at it. So I went to shop, which is what we do, right? We use retail therapy, and I did it for many, many years to help me feel better. Right. So in this case, it's like feel the emotions, let them guide you of what's really going on. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And then once we understand what's really going on, you say we integrate it all. Yeah. So it's like, listen to what's happening. You felt your feelings. Now you're starting to see a whole new thing arise where, ah, uh, yeah, you know what? At work, when I felt it, I'm like, I'm sad because I'm not being heard at work. Like, now we're getting into the core wounds. Like, I'm not being listened to. People aren't doing the things that I really want them to do. And my way of dealing with it has been to spend money. But in reality, there's this wound inside of me that I'm not really paying attention to. And I've just discovered it. And so by integrating that feeling, now you start to move into, see, notice how none of those were like, fix it. Like, we we deflected the fixing. Mm-hmm. But now we're like, huh, I, this is all about work. And what about if I went back to my husband and said, could we just talk about this because I'm struggling with something? I actually went shopping because I wasn't wanting to deal with this. But could we just, could you help me? Because I want to talk about this. And when you start to talk about it with someone else, perhaps, you realize that there's actually a response, which is, I just need to go to work and I need to talk to these folks about what's not happening and what's going on inside of me. And I can make a more productive, um, you know, solution than what I would have done, which was deal with the symptom, which was the shopping and deal with the partner relationship, which often gets dragged into our relationships with money. And now it's like, oh, I can go to work and, and have a totally different experience. It's really interesting, actually. I mean, that you, once you parse it to figure out what's really going on. I want to dig into a few of the ways our emotions hold us back when it comes to our investing in particular. But before we do that, I also want to remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster. It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity can help you evaluate your investment options and come up with more ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking with Lisa Peterson about our money mindsets and A lot of women have a stumbling block when it comes to getting into an investing mindset. We want to do it. I'm hearing that. I'm seeing that in the research. But we don't feel particularly knowledgeable, and so we don't feel particularly able to get started. How have you helped people get over that? I've found that I'll even step go one step back and then end up in investing I actually think it affects women's desire to save money because when we know where the money's going to go then and we we're confident about the investing we're more likely to start with the savings and so I actually think it starts in us not saving as much money because we're worried about what's going to happen when we make it and where does it go and all the decisions that get involved there but then when we start to Um, realize that, you know, let's say something like education, a lot of women, I mean, 
all of us did not receive a lot of education around investing and money management when we were in high school, which is a really pivotal time, and even into college. And so the lack of education causes us to feel lack of confidence. And then there's all these emotions going on under the surface, and it's kind of like a cocktail that just doesn't take us where we want to go. So I'm not sure. I mean, that's kind of the stage that I think that people are trying to move through. Mm -hmm. When we realize that it's just a feeling of discomfort and that's all it is it's not real it's just discomfort because of all those situations we own that feeling and then we think well okay fine I don't know as much as I want to know I don't feel great about this you all of a sudden start becoming more open to how do I help myself take action well and I I also think there is a big part of investing that involves becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable. That it's there are places in the world of money where there are right answers every single time. And by right, I mean you know that they are correct and they're going to take you where you want to go. Investing is not that mm. certain. You can hedge your bets in a lot of different ways. You can diversify. You can rely on history. You can do things that we know based on everything that has happened in the past will actually get you where you want to go. But can I give you a 100% guarantee? No, I can't. And that's really hard. It's hard for me. And, and I do this every day. So it's the uncertainty of investing that really makes it hard. And us. practice is the only thing that makes it easier. Doing it and seeing that it actually does work, even though it's not 100% certain, is what makes it more palatable to me. Totally. I also think having been a financial advisor, I think that there are a lot of things that financial professionals can do in approaching women and the concerns that they have and being Exactly what you just said is a really beautiful response. And it's like they don't say that. They just sell the products and they kind of talk down a lot of times. I mean, it's unfortunate, but I saw it over and over again in the industry where we don't, we go in already worried and then we hear what somebody's saying and we're like, oh my gosh, there's so much to learn. Could you just? explain this in more simple terms in a way that I can not just understand, but also trust what you're saying. Yeah. No, absolutely. A, a wonderful piece of research came out. Actually, I don't, even, I don't even think it was a piece of research. A wonderful story was written in The Cut, which is a, a New York Magazine site that I, I love and I read pretty much every day. But it was about how women need older women as money mentors because They've been there, they've done it, and they can tell it to you in language that you can understand. And these women don't have to be pros. They can be friends, they can be colleagues, they can be relatives, they can be older sisters. They just have to be somebody who has taken it on, particularly the investing challenge, and can tell you that it'll all be okay. Totally. The other piece that I've noticed that women really resonate with is 
being able to have their values translate into their investing. So like socially responsible Mm -hmm. investing and sustainable investing, it gets them more excited than just knowing that they're playing like the whole market. Now they're thinking about choices that they, you know, their feelings are being expressed and, and they're more open to ups and downs in the market because they're like, I know that I'm investing in something I really believe in. Well, and there's research on that too, that we're more likely to stick with our investments if they're in companies that we believe are furthering our agenda in the world. Lisa Peterson, we are going to have to leave it right there. Where can we find out more about you? Go to wealthclinic.com, and I have an exercise called the Wealth Flower, and it helps you get in touch with your feelings and your passions that you can translate into your financial planning. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much for being in studio with us today. Thank you. So Kelly Haldgren, our producer, has joined me in the studio. We talked a lot with Lisa about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know I'm always trying to meditate <laughs> unsuccessfully. Same. But how else are you going to be more mindful with your money in 2019? First, before I answer that, I downloaded the Headspace app. Yeah, I am going to do it too. It's pretty fantastic. You know, Amy Arrett, who people who listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of radio will know she is the CEO of Madison Reed, the hair color company. She was on a panel that I moderated recently at Know Your Value, Mm -hmm. and she was telling me that Headspace has totally changed her life. Like she exercises every single day, and she has her mind, I think she calls it her mindful physical, mm. mindful activity, mm-hmm. something like that. But it's akin to exercise. It's yep. it's 15 minutes, 10 to 15 every day that she just sets aside for this. And she said it's opened her mind to so many other things because it's given her the headspace. The headspace. Not yep. to, like, make this into a commercial, but <laughs> the headspace to think more freely. And, and she made me want to do that as well. Okay. Well, How is it going for you? So far, so good. I don't think I'm at the point where I've done it long enough to do an advertisement for it just yet. Like, it sounds like she has this relationship with it, which I hope to be at one point. So, so far, I find that it's just I'm calmer. Calmer is good. Yeah. Is calmer a word or is it more calm? No, calmer is a word. Okay. I mean, it's one of those words that sounds like you're spelling it wrong, but but it is a word. Okay. Well. And it's also an app. (laughs) Calm. Calm. No, it's calm is calm like... 10% 10% Happier is yes. another one of those yes. apps. I actually did that one for a little while. And we had uh, Dan Harris on the show. Yeah. yeah. And and I think it's nice that there are a lot of different voices to listen to when you want to take up meditation. But I'm going to try Headspace, too. Okay. Well, we'll keep each other accountable. And for being more mindful, on, on the note of accountability, for being more mindful in 2019, it'll be a continuation of what I started in 2018 about my food spending. Ah. So I have definitely made major life changes for myself in cooking more, eating leftovers, and not buying coffee. Very good. Yes. And it's made a huge impact on my budget, my health, my anxiety in a way of I, it's relaxing. It's also a practice that's meditative for me, cooking and just having a nice meal and creating something because in, in, in the creative space, and I bet people can relate to this too, like oftentimes you're working on projects that there's a long time until you have the finished product. Mm-hmm. Or if you're managing a product, like it it feels like you don't have something done 
um, every single day. There's always something that you're working on or something that you could be doing. I love the fact that like I spend an hour on something and I have a finished product. It gives me so much joy. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, you know, I've been, uh, I love to cook. I've been a home cook for ever. Mm -hmm. I have recently embraced my Instant Pot. Oh, I need to get one of those. Um, You know, I, I actually got it last year because I was convinced it was going to be life-changing. But it wasn't until I dug into Melissa Clark's cookbook, Dinner in an Instant, that it actually did start to change the way that I cook on a regular basis. And I know we have her coming up on the show as a guest. Here is my challenge for Melissa Clark when she comes (laughs) on the show. I am not convinced that what I'm cooking in my Instant Pot is not one fattening meal after another. Really? Yes. I think it's a lot of fatty cuts of meat. I'm good with that. And so (laughs) (laughs) so we are going to challenge Melissa Clark for healthy recipes that I can put in my Instant Pot, and I am not interested in using it to make yogurt. Ew. Yes. No. I want to cook dinner. Sorry. No judgment zone. No judgments. But ew. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Kelly. Let's take some questions. Let's do that. Barbara. Barbara has a question. She writes, my son has student debt of 90000 and paying 6% interest. Is there a way for him to refinance and get a lower rate? Uh, Barbara, that depends on his credit score. There may be. Interest rates right now are still at a point where you may be able to refinance, uh, roll those loans together in a consolidation, and um, get a slightly better interest rate. He may need you to co-sign for that. And if you've read my book, Money Rules, you know that one of those rules is when it comes to co-signing, just say no. However, there are some student loan refinancing companies that have systems in place where if you co-sign because your credit score is the only thing that will allow a child who doesn't have a long history of credit to qualify for a lower, better rate, as long as they have three years typically of on-time payments, there is an agreement to let you get out of co-signing. It's a, a co-signer release arrangement. I wouldn't do it unless that was in place. And I would also make sure that you've got some sort of system in place with your son so that you know that he is going to make all of his payments on time every time because that can mess up a co-signer. If that doesn't happen, you may even want him to pay you and you pay the institution so that you know it's going to happen. Of course, I would go through the process of trying to qualify based on his own credit, and that's definitely preferable if he can. 6% on the whole, it's not a terrible interest rate. And once you factor in the uh, the tax deductibility of student loans in the first five years of repayment, it actually comes down to about 4.5%. Okay. Now we'll do one from Jenny. I'm wondering if you could speak a little to how we can use our money responsibly in terms of both our own savings and goals, as well as in terms of our principles and ethics. As a broke grad student, I find it extremely difficult to buy products that are in my budget and aligned with my ethics. For example, when grocery shopping, the locally grown food at the farmer's market tends to be more expensive, as in fair trade foods, sustainable clothing brands, and beauty products. I find that most people give the advice of just buying fewer, nicer things, but I already find myself consuming quite little. Let me know if you have any creative thoughts. I totally get what you're saying, and I 
think in some cases you have to split the difference a little bit. My daughter, Julia, who I've talked about on this show before, is a food studies major in college. And the last time she was home for break, we had a very long discussion about what you have to buy organic and what you don't have to buy organic. And I know that organic is not the same necessarily as sourcing, but it does push the price point up a little bit. So I would say pick and choose a little bit. Pick and choose about those things that you really care the most about and put your money there. When it comes to beauty products, we actually wrote a piece about this on hermoney.com. I'd encourage you to go look at it because one of the things that the writer pointed out was that waste in and of itself is not very green. It's not very in line with the values that you're describing. And so From that perspective, getting rid of clothing that's not ethically sourced or throwing out makeup products that may not be fair trade but which you haven't quite finished using doesn't skew nicely with that methodology. And so from that perspective, finishing those products that you have in your makeup bag and then replacing them one by one, just like you'd slowly replace items in your closet one by one, might be the way to eventually acquire belongings and products that you feel good about while not breaking the bank. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to say about food in particular is I'm sure you already work really hard and you may not have any additional hours in your day, but many cities still have food co-ops. And if you join a co-op and you work in the co-op in some way or another, you may be able to get a discount on some of those products. Mm -hmm. I know people who do that. Mm -hmm. I do too. Yeah, they absolutely love it. And also, if you have some time, take the time to research the labels and the certifications and what we think were being advertised as green products or more sustainable. I learned a lot about that too, about green greenwashing, almost greenwashing or Mm -hmm. green marketing in college. And it can be deceptive. So if you are thinking about focusing your budget in this way, Make sure that you're putting your money and your time worth to products that are in line with your values. Absolutely. So we'll do one more with Rebecca. I am in my mid-40s, and I have a BA and MA in psychology. I have worked for the last 15 years for a great nonprofit that helps homeless women and children get back on their feet. Wow, that sounds great. I know. I started as a caseworker, but after the local nonprofit credit counseling organization in our area closed a few years ago, they asked if I would become a certified credit counselor to fill the gap for our clients. I agreed, and I went on through the NACCC, and I have been counseling our clients about their finances and credit ever since. I just love it. Helping these women value themselves and their money often for the first time in their lives has been a joy. The training I received was perfect for what I currently do, but I'm considering my next career move. I want to be earning more money and would like to move out of the human services field. I'm interested in areas such as, but not limited to, financial advising, planning, and would love your suggestions about what kind of careers, along with training and certifications, I could be looking into if I wanted to move more into the financial arena. So first of all, I love that you're thinking about this. I think that being a financial advisor is a wonderful career path for women and would be something that you should absolutely look into because it would build on your natural skills of being A, a therapist, and B, a credit counselor. You already know about both emotions and money, which makes me 
understand that you would be really, really good at this. The credential you probably want to look into is the Certified Financial Planning Credential, the CFP. You can find information on it online. It involves some coursework and a pretty lengthy examination, but I think you've set yourself up in in a great position to go after it. And you don't have to quit what you're doing now. It's the kind of thing that you could take courses online and get the credential over time rather than quitting your day job and trying to go into it without having any income to support you. The other alternative is to go to work for a financial planning firm like our sponsor Fidelity or one of many others that has a training program for financial advisors. And you will go through with them getting various certifications that they require of you. But a lot of firms are truly cultivating women. They want women because they know that women are really, really good at this. And so I'd say look at both. Look at both the CFP and the programs from any financial institutions in your area. Go ahead, do some interviews, talk to some women who are already in the career, and then make a choice. But it sounds good to me. (laughs) Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much, Kelly. In our weekly Thrive segment, have you heard of the FIRE movement, F-I-R-E? I've mentioned it on the show before, and we have a podcast dedicated to it coming up very soon. But if you're just hearing of this, the acronym stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's got a lot of folks fired up, but for different reasons. Devotees of the movement are dedicated to saving 50%, that's half, of their annual income or more in a quest to amass 25 times their annual spending, which would allow them to, in many cases, retire from full-time work. Now, detractors say this kind of lifestyle is basically one step above freeganism and that they are making the rest of us who are only able to save 10% of our income, if we're lucky, feel bad. But as Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary recently wrote, and if you don't remember, Michelle was on the podcast. She's episode 120, so check her out. As she recently wrote, the movement may be a little misunderstood. Just 35% of FIRE practitioners say they're motivated by quitting work and retiring early. Most of these folks are just seeking a work-life balance. Additionally, about two-thirds of FIRE folks said hitting their savings goal is not worth it if it means they have to live as though they are broke. In fact, whether you go full-on FIRE or not, the movement has a lot to teach all of us about ways to earn a little more, spend a little less, and line up both of those things with your values. Thank you all so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lisa Peterson for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Abby Ellen. She's got a fabulous new book out called Duped. We'll talk soon. 